0: Welcome to How to Go to Work, the podcast that explores ways to get started. I'm author Lucy Clayton, and each week I'll be asking a guest to take us right back to the beginning. We'll be talking to people from all sorts of industries about how they began, how they chose their career or how it chose them, how they've met challenges or exploited chances, the times when they've been held back or inspired further. We know that even if you've had good support at home and in education, there are lots of things no one tells you about making the transition into the workplace. It's an almost universal rite of passage, and yet it's still shrouded in mystery. And a lot of this is simply because people can forget to talk about those early moments of their career once they reach the apex of it. So for young people, it's often hard to imagine what the journey looks like to the job of your dreams. So we're going to find out from the people who have been there and done all that. And today, I'm talking to Dr. Raoul Jandial. He's one of the world's top brain surgeons, and for years, he's transformed the lives of his neurosurgery patients by putting them through brain rehab, his specially developed boot camp for restoring brain function. He's both a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist, and his book, published by Penguin, Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon, The New Science and Stories of the Brain, uses his expertise to show how healthy people can rewire their brains to work in a higher gear. It includes personal storytelling from the operating table and an exploration of the new frontiers of science. It gives us all a chance to learn how to train our brains with America's top brain surgeon. He's usually found at the city of Hope, a research center, hospital and postgrad training facility in Los Angeles, or leading a team of scientists at the Johndeal Laboratory known for his cutting edge approach to brain surgery and neuroscience. but today he's here with me in London and i 'm especially delighted to welcome him to the studio. Thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, my pleasure and i'm off duty so you're going to get candid answers
0: <laughs> candid answers is what we want let's start then right back at the very beginning tell me what was your first ever job
1: my first ever job was working at a gnc in a mall in los angeles gnc was something general nutrition and they had all the vitamins and weight gainer and it was a it was a <laughs> little place in the mall and and uh, it was interesting. I was happy with that job because not many people came into that store. So it was basically. <laughs> so you were paid on the shop out. floor
0: at the weekends?
1: Uh, evenings as well. So you you know, you could put in twenty hours by getting a few hours in during the weekdays and then an eight hour shift on the weekend. And uh, that was a great job for me because it was at the mall. So that was fun. <laughs> Number two, my friends could come in and say hi because it was not very busy. Brilliant. And I thought that's, I mean, that was an advantage. I didn't want that to be my career. I didn't really have any career trajectory in my mind at that time. But I'm 16, getting paid to hang out at the mall and not doing much. So that was my first job.
0: That was a good start. Yeah. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Uh, people have asked me that question. And I This is a bizarre answer, but this is the truth. I was really influenced by the show Miami Vice. And for a while, <laughs> I, I, I know where this is going. But, and my son was telling me, Dad, are you really going to tell that story? It's the, son. <laughs> the luxury of being where I'm at now is I don't have to be dishonest. I can no. just be myself. And I love the style and I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to be uh, not a cop, you know, but a detective. I wanted to you know uh, have a, a loose tie like the look a loose tie <laughs> yeah an interesting blazer and and that was appealing to me because it was sexy and i yeah. wanted a, i wanted a career where i felt sexy in that career
0: i don't think people talk about that you're right there's a kind of there are a bunch of i guess and they tend to be either elite or kind of dangerous you mm-hmm. know detective careers where people you know there is a kind of glamour to it yeah. uh which is odd because i think they they fall into kind of this quite a strange group of jobs that are like that
1: yeah and when you go to a party or you go somewhere your career uh, without getting into how much you make and where you work and what you you know where your watch is or what car you drive because yeah. those answers and que- those questions and answers in los angeles are one annoying and too often uh lied about so i like things like firefighter right. detective yeah You know what they do. You don't have to ask anything more. And chances are people are going to want to talk to you if you're at a party. So I thought those were sexy options for me when I was 16 hanging out in the mall.
0: And do you think that that I mean, clearly, what you do now falls into that category? Was that a factor?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I medical. it. No, yes. this, absolutely. I mean, I was in medical school and we had 18,000 medical students graduating. I didn't want to be a GP. I love GPs. My, I need a GP. <laughs> uh, that's that's not to diminish anybody, but it wasn't sexy to me. And surgeons were sexy. Yeah. And I don't know what they're thought of now because I'm in it, so I don't have a great perspective. But when I was in the 1980s and 19, 1990s, Uh, they were, they were badass. they were sexy, they looked good. Um, that was the reputation that existed in medical school for surgeons. Not only did they make more, which attracted a lot of doctors to it, but for me, they had a better narrative.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And
1: they had a, it was, you know, when you say a doctor now, I don't even know what that means. Mm. It could be a psychologist and I, I'm not disrespecting anybody, but to me, the word surgeon, Is so simple, impeccable, and precise. You know what I do. And it's an understanding that he must be a doctor also, but he's a surgeon. And I love the power of that word. Uh, People who don't speak the language understand that word.
0: No, and it's very evocative as well. It says, you know, it conjures a whole bunch of images. And I was thinking about it as I was reading your book. And I thought one of the things that was really interesting to me and I, I guess I hadn't thought about this before, but kind of brain surgeon is used as a cultural shorthand, certainly in this country, for just really clever. And so, you know, lots of things are, well, it's not brain surgery mm-hmm. as a kind of benchmark of of kind of just to stand for smartness. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is interesting about your book, which I'd never considered, is the physicality of it yeah. versus the, the cerebral yeah. aspect because I think that's something that culturally we don't talk about. So I'm interested yeah. about that as a balance because there's a kind of craftsmanship which is yeah. very much about what you do with your hands which I think, again, we tend to divide and we think of them of those jobs as being perhaps less elite or lower down. They, they're given less weight yeah. culturally but in your book you talk the physicality of it is really startling, I think. I'd love to know what you think about that as a as a dual aspect to a role.
1: Thank you for that question. I think that's what's been lost is when people say brains it's not brain surgery or you know they think of somebody who's extremely smart, extremely clever, but in our craft the ones who do best on the tests are frankly less like the 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 group that's least likely to be talented at the actual art of performing surgery. They'll pass all the tests, they'll make all the diagnoses, they'll write all the books, the chapters, the papers, but that's not necessarily the ones brain surgeons go to when they themselves need right. surgery. That's a different thing. So the the ability to work with my hands on Wednesdays. It is such a wonderful ritual in my life. I don't want to think all day. I don't want to think every day i don't want to hit deadlines i don't want to have a clinic with 20 patients from 8 to 10 to me that's boring on the flip side i don't want to work with my hands every day either right, okay. and that's what makes this job really amazing is i have one or two days of clinic and one or two days of performing surgery mm-hmm. completely different flow, completely different mind frame. Clinic, you go in, you're gonna to talk to patients, you're interacting with them. It's a different energy. I like to wear, um, you know, it I sort of have a Spresatura look. I don't think you want your surge cancer surgeon to have a Rolex and pull up in an Aston Martin. That's a bad look. And it's not my style anyway. <laughs> don't
0: worry, it doesn't happen on the NHS. Like oh,
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The, and plastic surgeons in Los Angeles have given surgeons, you know, an interesting name. I won't say a bad name, but for me i like to look sharp because the patients want to know you're put together i like to be fit because i want them to know that i won't tire if i have to work inside them for eight hours it's a very energy delivery kind of thing of course and then the day of surgery you don't actually talk to the patient so that's a whole different thing the night before i do a light workout just to get a little tone i have a ritual in the morning i um I pull into the same parking spot. Nobody's there at 7 a.m. I take the stairs and then all the way up and then I come back to the second floor to just to get a little tone in my legs because I might be just hunching over with miner's headlight on my head magnifying loops on my eyes so you want to get a little strength in your body uh, because fatigue makes cowards of us all and I don't plan on tiring inside when I'm I'm working on somebody so that's a very different just what you're hearing is a different day for me than clinic how are you Putting, putting an emotional connection to a cancer patient and being able to do both is really really been the best part of my career. And I think that's what makes surgery unique. What we tell what I tell people is all surgeons are physicians, but not all physicians are surgeons. Mm -hmm. I still write prescriptions. I still ask somebody to hang a powerful medicine in the ICU. But then I get to go to a space where GPs and physicians don't get to go to. And that's the operating theater. And it's called theater for a reason. People hunch over you and watch, you know, it's you're physically performing something. And some of us are better than others. I'm not saying I'm the best, but some of us are better than others.
0: But if you were starting out in that on that trajectory, it sounds like how did you know how can you call whether you're good at that stuff at the physicality of it?
1: Well, I think you see you have a little you have some aptitude. And unfortunately, we're letting a lot of people into surgery based on marks only. And then they later on figure out they're not. Hand. They're not sort of people who are talented with their hands. But I had no idea. And actually, if somebody would have shown me a surgery when I was a teenager yeah. or my early 20s, I would have been motivated with school. Classes were boring. So it was a, it was basically 28 years of torture in the classroom, yeah. sitting around with students who are frankly not interesting they're not going to be very socially adept if they're trying to get the highest marks in the class right they're going to be in the library
0: because it's so demanding
1: It's so demanding you have to hit the marks to get in and but if somebody had showed me punish yourself with classes and then you get to do this job where you know you have a drill that you control with your right foot you've got a a piece of metal that looks like a fountain pen that shoots electricity and then you can spend hours under a, a open skull and you're crafting and you're moving inside. No different than a sculptor. I would have said, shit, I don't mind going to school if this is what it's going to lead to. Yeah. But I never had that insight. I never had that perspective. I never had anybody come show me that. So when I was in training and I took a sabbatical in brain surgery training when I was in Southern California, I started a, a class at the university um, that basically i had my friends they're all young we we're all surgeons and we came in and we just showed slides of all the cool stuff we were doing there was no, <laughs> there were no tests everybody got an a it was a seminar but we we're like look at this this guy rides a motorcycle and, and his neck broke like this and we put it together with these screws or oh, yeah. look at this this patient's uh, always uh grabbing the doorknob and is obsessed with it ocd and we put a little brain catheter deep inside the brain and like uh, like a defibrillator we tickle it and that impulse goes away so we just started showing them all the cool stuff and it was a really popular class mm. and it was for me it was just to say i wish somebody would have told me this is the end point for all the hard work because yeah. i endured it and and then i
0: dropped out so talk to me about dropping out because that's a really interesting you are clearly yeah. a driven and motivated person so what happened
1: surprisingly less than my colleagues but yes driven motivated motivated for uh a diversity of experiences in this short life that I have. You start to see that when you get to be 45. But because I was enduring classes and I didn't know what it was for, I just said, you know, this sucks. This is so stupid. I don't even know where this is going. So I'm at university. I'm in Berkeley. San Francisco's across the way. And I just decided, I mean, I'm not paying attention. I'm getting mediocre marks. I'm paying no attention to getting mediocre marks. Maybe I Just take a year or two off. Mm -hmm. worst case scenario, I'll come back and get those mediocre marks and get my bachelor's degree. So I wasn't worried that dropping out of college would mean I would be a college dropout and never go back. I knew I was like, I'm not even trying and I could finish this just with low mark, but I'm not competing for anything. And so what I did was I dropped out. I just I just didn't want to be there anymore. And I was getting so much enrichment from the environment. And so I volunteered at San Francisco General when the AIDS crisis was there, and that was the epicenter. I was taking the train from Oakland, and now Oakland has become sort of uh, has some cachet in, in American culture for being the origin of where the Black Panther started. And I was, this is just, this is the best aquarium. I'm going to swim around for a little bit. And during that time, um, I was not an avid reader. I didn't read in high school. I just read Cliff Notes to get satisfactory grades and get to the just get. I feel so anxious thing. here.
0: I'm such a reader. I'm feeling I, like I'm really was, anxious hearing you say. I know. Like, oh, I am girl. now. I'm like
1: perfect. No, I was. I never read. <laughs> it was not as seductive as just right. going out and partying. Yeah, and I think that's true for most people. Yeah. Most people who have hidden talents or latent ambition, that's just not. They're not ready for that to. Uh, reveal itself or to blossom because the hormones are going, you know, there's sexual attraction, there's disinhibition from just being a teenager. Mm-hmm. That's really the frontal lobe has not gelled down what is right and wrong, what should be and shouldn't be. And so it's, it's a wild time that I feel like should be explored within limits. And studying in classes were constraining and stifling me too much. So those two years, one, let me get older, more mature. I got to see a lot of people, got to see a lot of different things. And um, and that made me think, you know what? I should actually go back to school
0: because
1: mm. these are great places to look at. But I'm not sure I want to be a volunteer at San Francisco General Hospital for 30 years. I like working in the cafeteria as a security guard for now. But you kind of have to do that to say, okay, that's not really a long term thing for me. And I have other opportunities in front of me. And then I started going back to college. Uh, I also met a woman at that time, and she was uh, ambitious and organized. (laughs) And um, I, you know, she did sort of pull me in that direction as well. So my mother also had breast cancer at that time. She's doing fine. But 25 years ago, uh, a cancer diagnosis, in and in a woman was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. I got her name tattooed on my arm 20-something years ago. Before ink was in Now it's popular, right? <laughs> Chefs have now it. Now everyone and has it. Now yeah. it's, you know... <laughs> yeah, you you don't have to be afraid of people with ink anymore. But back then, people thought I was yeah. a biker or ex prisoner, <laughs> and I was just like, huh, this is funny. And I put it on my arm, so I could, forearm, so I could cover it. Yeah. And then I became a surgeon, and while it was, and now I'm wearing things that are short sleeves. So
0: terrible, I, terrible placement. It's
1: been that haphazard.
0: <laughs> um, I think that's interesting that the idea of kind of giving yourself permission to say, I want to explore something else for a bit and that not being the same as giving up on a thing and I think for many young people especially if you have been put on a path which is you know a certain amount of schooling a certain amount of university a certain amount of it's it's quite formulaic and to step outside of that feels like a really brave or or feels like a difficult thing to do sometimes but it's not the same as saying I'm giving up on everything. It's simply taking a, a slightly circuitous route mm. or or exploring something that may later on. Do you think that that time did more than kind of drive you back to continue? It informed other things, that you, other decisions that you made later in terms of specializing or in terms of your passions now
1: yeah the second half of your question is absolutely I think it was a defining moment in my life one I started reading so even though I wasn't smarter or studying harder when I went back I got better grades because I could communicate better on paper so I thought oh that's funny I'm I'm not (laughs) smarter but I'm just better at writing the answers so that's how this game works is what I thought to myself and uh, the diversity of interactions the getting out of Los Angeles where Uh, When men look at each other, it's to uh, it's to be adversarial and potentially get into a fight. Los Angeles has that intense sort of weird male male interaction. Then I was in San Francisco and men were looking at me for other reasons. (laughs) I thought, wait, this is completely different. And Oakland was different, too. It was just it was a fantastic alternative perspective. Yeah. alternative universe almost that I wouldn't have even known, I wouldn't have known existed if I didn't leave Los Angeles. So just a bit of a geographical move to a different environment was cathartic. Mm. Uh, And uh, the interactions at at that time were very important that I want a richness of experiences. And if I can have a career that pays the bills, that helps people, not in that order, helps people, Mm. pays the bills, and lets me do a bunch of cool shit. Yeah. That's a luxury. Yeah, And then it got extended even further that I became a scientist. I got a PhD and that launched into a strange television career in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles, which launched into a book thing that I'm here with you talking was all random. But I think it all started when I went, I thought about obliquity and the circuitous route. And I just took a pause. And I think a lot of these things have developed from that. Mm -hmm. But your original question, that's a double edged sword. That's a slippery slope. If you're struggling with school and you take... Uh, A year or two off, you got to know who you are. You might be you might be just saying I'm taking time off when you know you're done. So you got to know which bucket you're in. If you think taking time off and coming back to college is extremely unlikely, I would say endure and finish and at least get some initials and a diploma because that's going to help you later. But if you're seeing I can get through this, but I'm not making the most of it, please do
0: take a break. It worked for me. Can you talk then about your first the the kind of steps towards your first proper job by which I mean what you're what you professionally do now and I'm interested particularly in I guess understanding and for people listening who might be thinking about being kind of I guess broadly in the world of medicine shall we say I as funny I was in a hospital yesterday weirdly and I was the student nurse was kind of you know filling in a form with me and she said she opened the conversation with i'm a student nurse and i thought to myself obviously i wasn't really thinking about the form she was asking me to fill in i was just thinking about her experience starting out in an environment which is so different to my experience of starting out at the same age of 22 whatever she is and it struck me that you have to be to do a job in that environment any job you're beginning and you're learning all of the things that anyone needs to learn when they first start out in any career, but you also have to be able to do it in front of people who are frightened or mm-hmm. anxious or at the kind of care aspect requires something of you as a personality beyond just, you know, I'm starting out in an office and I'm learning how, how this shit works. There's a really difference, that kind of other side to it requires this combination of kind of confidence and intimacy mm-hmm which plus working in an environment that is high pressure. I'm really mm-hmm. interested in what that feels like when you first start out.
1: Right. There is the conundrum of how do we get super smart students and once the classes are done, throw them into this building that has drug addicts, CEOs, artists, people getting cured, people finding out they're dying, people actually dying. It's quite the aquarium of humanities, how I think about it. That's what attracted me to it. I didn't like the classes. I liked being with people. I'm not meant to be in a cubicle. And that goes back to those t- the time I took off and the, the wilder days of my adolescence. That actually made me great at connecting with people on an emotional level. And that was a strength of mine. Uh, marks and grades weren't. on On the other way of looking at it, um, a lot of the students didn't like interacting with patients. They chose radiology so they wouldn't have to interact <laughs> with patients. My friends have chosen anesthesiology so <laughs> yeah. they talk to patients for about Three 30 seconds. seconds and then <laughs> off you go to sleep. And, Perfect. <laughs> and when they go home, they don't have to get a call. So it you select yourself within medical school uh, if you get in, if you're fortunate enough to get in, which requires certain marks, Uh, In university or college, as we call it over there. And then when you get in, the doors don't narrow for you. They actually expand. You can sit at home and just look at images on your two monitors and have a great career as a radiologist. You can actually work as a pathologist where you just look at tissue that's cut out under a microscope. You can work uh, in an ICU. You can work in a clinic. You can work in, as, as I like, multiple buildings multiple floors within those multiple buildings. I'm doing a different thing every day, and I love that. Mm -hmm. So the variety of uh, opportunity increases. But to deal with the pressure, you select for that. I think some of us want the intense interaction. We go into cancer surgery or cancer medicine for a reason. I like like intensely uh, committed patients to their health. When I did trauma surgery for a while, families wouldn't be in the waiting room sometimes when the person was hurt. And sometimes the patients were doing things that led to their own injury. Mm. I pivoted to cancer surgery. They're praying in the waiting room. It's an intense interaction for the family, for the patients. They always take chemotherapy. I don't prescribe that, but they come in and the surgical process is a, is a very sacred one. So I selected myself. So people say, well, it's cancer surgery. It must be tough. I said, wait, they're all heroes.
0: Yeah, okay. And That's I really drive interesting. Out. Yeah, right. I, I right. deal with
1: intense heroes and then I drive home. To me, that's fantastic. So, again, you get to select for it. Not all doctors save lives. Most don't. Not all doctors are taking care of intense situations. And in medical school, you can choose. If you don't want that, you don't have to have that. And the intense situations, the intense surgery, it doesn't pay more. So you get people choosing dermatology and ENT to do eyelid procedures. And they say, hey, I I want the credit card to run through before the patient comes (laughs) into my clinic. And I want to go home at five. I want to make a lot of money. I'm a doctor. I'm a surgeon, but I don't want all of this sick, dying patients. But to me, um, how would I learn about life if I didn't have all those sick patients?
0: All of that is about knowing yourself well enough at the point at which you have to make really critical decisions about which path you take within that within that world, and that's difficult, particularly if you've as you've said been stuck in a cubicle in a library with your head down learning. Um, And what I say to everyone in all careers is you've got to know as much about yourself and and indeed where you get your energy from. So clearly Mm -hmm. you are... Yeah. motivated and you know I mean you said in in your book that you know surgery is still a thrill night like, mm-hmm. like no other. So there is a kind of adrenaline thrill seeking i I speak as the least adventurous thrillless seeker in the <laughs> thrill
1: <world. laughs> I'm like, thrillless.
0: I like take your thrills away. I don't want to know them. Uh it's uh, that but That's that kind funny. of a sense of intensity yeah. and all the sort of adrenaline is clearly something that you knew you not only could deal with but enjoyed
1: yeah so uh, one i took two years off as after i dropped out that let me mature and see the world a little bit then when you then i applied to medical school thinking i mean i didn't know what doctors did you know i only knew from what i had gone to a doctor to get a a shot or something when i was a teenager uh when i took two years off i was 24 so i was getting older that's nice and the first two years of medical school in the states are boring classwork so now i'm 26 older old enough to know and now you do third and fourth year of a four year medical t- schooling to get your MD you you spend 3 months in all the different services OBGYN general medicine surgery pediatrics and you see what people do it's like the best speed dating if yeah, right. okay that's the strangest <laughs> way anybody described that yeah. but I, I get a sample of uh, all of these careers and you see and you're spending time with people who are in that profession. You're like, Ugh, i do not not sure about that, or that's kind of weird, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. And you know, the long education and my very long approach to it allowed me to mature in parallel to be able to say, you know what, life is short. I want a job that excites me. Because I've said this frankly to many other people. If I were a GP or pediatrician, I would suck because I would be dismissive yeah. or not focused and not paying attention but surgery demands ownership and i knew i knew myself enough to know if it's high stakes i'll be high performance and high attention if it's not high stakes i'm going to be sloppy yeah i knew that about myself but that's
0: a hu- that is a sophisticated thing to know in your early 20s isn't it like there's i think that's and i think any time spent educating it sounds deeply egotistical but educating yourself about yourself means that you are less likely to make decisions that are wonky uh, at that point at which you get that taster menu of because in most careers there's that point perhaps less um formalized but that point of sort of this little taster of this and this yeah. is what even in you internships know, and... yeah and or like this is what this department does in this massive monolithic you know tech company or whatever you get a kind of insight a little bit uh, but people must get that wrong that bit wrong all the time or make assumptions about things based on a tiny window into a
1: that's an excellent point and that's where we get a lot of people changing once they choose mm-hmm. i started out in uh, going into general surgery to become a heart surgeon i thought this is kind of boring it's kind of it's all it's it's a pump i see it it's gonna be fun it's you know, but when I got to see <laughs> brain surgery, I was like, "Wow, this is this is heavenly marble here." So I, I knew this was different. I got the opportunity to pivot. Yeah, um, a lot of people going to surgery will pivot out into anesthesia. So, very good point you've raised, and I think medicine, if you can get in, allows tremendous breadth of practice styles, allows tremendous flexibility of hours, mm. uh, and also allows you to pivot. If you if you go down a road for the ambition of me, I'm going to be a surgeon and it's badass. It's going to be fantastic. You're like, this is miserable. Yeah. Well, it's an easy pivot to anesthesia or other practices, which of
0: course is the advantage of having being in a career where there is such a basis of knowledge before you start to
1: exactly. And that that extra training liberates you from competitors. They only let a certain amount of people in. So there's always latitude to move around other than like other than careers like Medicine. I think many careers, for example, law in the states, there there are horrible law schools. They just let everybody in. They'll graduate anybody. Yeah. Then you have to fend for yourself, improve yourself. In the states, they let in seventeen to twenty thousand medical students, and then there are seventeen to twenty thousand residency spots, and there are usually jobs right afterwards. You know, you may not get it in Los Angeles or New York or places you may want to live, but they're there. So you've sort of uh, liberated yourself from the constant competition. Mm-hmm. You may choose to be competitive, but you've liberated yourself from the constant competition of people coming into your field. There's always a job for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that allows people to calm down and also find out who they are. I, it, for me, being in medicine has been a fantastic thing. I didn't expect it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually stirred me the more I understood it. But I know a lot of my friends are like, I worked hard. I'm a medic. I've got a good, safe job. I don't really have to learn too many. This is going to sound horrible, but it's true. I don't have to learn too much. I don't have to learn too many new things to be able to hold this position for the yeah. next few decades, where if you're in tech or fashion or something, I mean, every six months, yeah. you've got something new and somebody wanting your job.
0: I think that relationship with things like speed and learning new stuff or new frontiers is, is interesting. And again, is about just knowing what where kind of where you get your kicks but also your comfort zone we talk about in in our book we talk about comfort zone as being you know we've it's very has been fashionable for years to be like be out of your comfort zone be out of your comfort zone and it's actually like in terms of learning stuff that isn't always the best place to be particularly if you're a personality who doesn't thrive on that sense of unknown or instability so for example so one of the things and we've talked about it a little bit but that sense of the intensity of or I guess it's more about the stakes being really high. Like when you're doing your job, the stakes are always really high. And there is an intensity to that experience that requires real resilience. And as you say, kind of, um, you got to kind of, be a certain Mm -hmm. so i know that i'm really i can do i can work in my business you know really hard for about six weeks and as soon as it gets to week seven i become shit at everything Mm. like i know that the pattern for me is like i can really be quite intense and then i just i just it's just not worth me doing anything i need more of a, a yeah it just it doesn't work like that whereas every week you are certain That level of performance is required of you,
1: and only certain times of the week, which is great. You're not operating seven days a week. Sure, surgeons have clinic; they do other things. And on that day, it's a cathartic act. The pent up emotions, the distractions of the week over there, the focus calms me. It's meditative. Whether you're a deep diver, or you're a Buddhist monk, or you're a ballerina, or you know you're a footballer there's a certain zen flow state where you're you're calm you're you know stress that kind of stress calms me yeah. if otherwise if i'm in clinic or driving i'm thinking about a million things but surgery is that day i get to meditate is that day in the gym or it's the physical performance that's just demanding enough to where you know i'm not sweating bullets <laughs> but It is it is so encompassing that I am relaxed in some strange way, and then I get back to all the frenetic activities of a Los Angeles life on on the day after. Yeah, and there are fun people in the operating room. I think you you'd be surprised since (laughs) the patient is a a fun place. (laughs) Well, this is here's another insight I think people will be shocked to hear or surprised to hear. Since I'm a different person in clinic and the ICU because the patients are awake. But once the patient is asleep, right. uh, I, I don't mean like I'm referencing some sort of vulgar behavior I just mean I'm talk as it like we're talking i I operate better during while I'm having a conversation with a technician next to me yeah. who's been who didn't go to university and uh, was maybe got one or year, one or two years of technical training, and and they're handing me instruments, and that's the best part of my surgery. I don't have to, I don't have to clean <laughs> any gear. It's just always handed to me. That part's no, no fun. washing up. I used to work in a restaurant. I don't, I don't like cleaning up. And uh, no washing up. And so they they hand you stuff, and you're talking to them, and you're working. And the opening of an operation, the and the closure of an operation is the the lower stress time. Unlike f- like flying, where takeoff and landing right, is yes, hard. Yes, okay our part where you know you might say hey all right i'm gonna let's talk a little bit is the middle part of the operation so when you're opening you're talking and you're hanging out and the the not thinking about what you're doing with your body is actually the best way to have finesse and smoothness if you're if your hand your movements are clunky and and grabby the tissue feels that you get more complications afterwards so there's a rhythm and flow to operating that uh Having a task at hand, uh, somebody you enjoy talking to you next to you, and the patients asleep—that's yeah. uh, also it's a f- it's f- it's fun to operate. If your surgeon doesn't like to operate, you have a problem. <laughs> I would say they might have forced themselves into a career for uh, some twisted ambitions, whether it's money or fame or pride. But I like to operate. I think it's enjoyable to do something with craftsmanship where the patient wakes up better after my intervention.
0: So uh, what's been the best piece of advice you've given to a young person recently? I, uh,
1: recently, I, I just been passing on the good, the good advice that I was given to me when I was finding my way back from being a university dropout, a college dropout. And I was a professor actually in Compton, which is the city from which Kendrick Lamar and NWA and Serena, the Williams sisters came from. I was there just for, for summer and for a little bit. And he just said, I know you'll do well, but I hope you do good. So I, I, that, that motivated me as well as when I'm at a juncture, should I become a plastic surgeon or should I become a cancer surgeon? I'm gonna do well. Why don't I try to do some good too? I think it'll it'll change my it'll it'll evolve my identity in a different way if I choose this craft.
0: If you were interviewing me, or if you're what what do you look for in young talent that you're going to collaborate with, or what do you need to be impressed by?
1: For me, in this field that I'm in, it's it's a very simple answer. It's it's authenticity, because everything else we can train. But if I get a disingenuous person that's going to work with me on cancer patients or sick patients, I don't get that at all. And what I would caution everybody is you may think you're clever when you're 25, but when you're being interviewed by somebody who's 60 and has taken care of 20,000 humans as part of their career, they get people. Patients lie to us all the time. I mean, there's not, it's not a big deal. You get a wide range of society. So <laughs> be authentic. If you over-present yourself, it reeks of something undesirable. So just be your best in your true narrative and that's the farthest you're going to get. I'm the best at saying, I don't know. I didn't I didn't look at that. Well, I, didn't know. I think I that don't. takes
0: real confidence and age as well to be able to say, I don't know about that thing. Where I think there's a period where everyone is just fronting up all the time and it is exhausting and it means you learn less because if you don't say I don't know then no one will tell you the bloody answer. It should be
1: sprinkled and it shouldn't be every answer. (laughs) Yeah
0: that's true (laughs) everyone loses total confidence in you Um, and what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were younger?
1: Uh, What we touched on earlier I wish I could have had a, a, a video of a day in the life of a surgeon and I would have said Psh, that's a cool gig <laughs> i never had that and it would have motivated me to endure the arduous and tedious part of training the hazing that comes before they let you in the club you really want to be in
0: I think we're all guilty in all professions of presenting the best version of everything. What's your advice for somebody starting at work and experiencing having a day where it doesn't all go to plan or where shit goes wrong? What's the best way to approach that, do you think, in your experience?
1: Outside of the obvious, where if my patient doesn't do well. But uh, a shitty day for me is... Having two surgeries, starting one scheduled for 7.30, one scheduled for 1.00. Surgery goes fine, but mistakes are made by other people. The scheduling is off, and I have to start my surgery at 4 o'clock and finish at 8 or 9 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'm irritated a little bit. I mean, the surgery goes fine, but the patients are thrown off a little bit. I'm going home late. I've been standing all day. I'm getting into my car as I'm heading off and I feel a spasm in my lower back and maybe a, a twinge in my neck because I've been working all day. That's not a sexy part of my day.
0: Right. But presumably it's easier to keep going because you made that decision early on, which is to do good rather than... Right. That, right. that and, helps.
1: Right. But there are still structural elements of even a surgeon's career where it's, listen, we we have to deal with baloney too.
0: Yeah. admin know. shit.
1: Yeah. Oh. I'm oh my gosh so don't much get me of being started. a grown-up is
0: admin like yeah. it just
1: <laughs> and actually and, and being a surgeon has very low admin uh quotient if you will that's yeah. another plus I I don't I'm not good in meetings I'll speak honestly <laughs> and then get demoted
0: <laughs> I'm not sure I believe you but I will let that one pass and the only other thing I wanted to touch on very quickly is the kind of value of an importance of expertise. I think certainly in this country, the concept of expertise has, been, has had a real bashing over the last few years. It doesn't help that, you know, our politicians make statements like the pe- British people have uh, had enough of experts, which is like a really unbelievably unhelpful thing to say. And most people thought, no, actually, we really love them. <laughs> but, you know, the idea of and particularly in your case, where it's expertise layered upon expertise, what do you what would you say to someone who is kind of fascinated by that and wants that as part of their professional life
1: if you can afford it if you can endure it I think it's liberating I know what I do people know what I do I don't have to constantly impress people I wouldn't be here if I weren't a brain surgeon sitting here talking to you the brain surgery platform has launched all kinds of other things plus provided me not just a safety net but an amazing foundation for a life with security and uh, worthwhile work so I, I think experts are phenomenal but if you're an expert who doesn't continue to explore life and humanity, I'm not sure all your wisdom can be easily imparted upon people because you get so much in your silo that you only speak your own language and you only have your own thoughts. That's why doing this, that's why writing a book, that's why traveling. I'm the expert that can you know you can sit down with and have a cocktail with and have a real conversation with.
0: Dr. Rahul Jandil, thank you for being here and taking part in this project. I've learned so much from this conversation and I know that our listeners will feel the same. The link to Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon, the new science and stories of the brain is in our show notes and I highly recommend it. I devoured it in an afternoon and frankly felt much better afterwards. Don't forget that our book, How to Go to Work, is published by Penguin. The link's also in our show notes. So if you're interested in further reading, check that out. Please subscribe and review this show. It really helps new listeners find us. And if you know someone who's making decisions about who or what they want to be as they enter the world of work, do recommend this project. We're all doing it because we really think we can help people feel more confident and more prepared by sharing the essential advice no one ever tells you at the start of your career. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Mark, our editor. Join me, Lucy Clayton, next time for another honest and unvarnished conversation about how to go to work.